Welcome to Skim This. I'm Alex Carr. We're going to start this week with some updates on where things stand in Ukraine. Russian forces are continuing to advance on Ukrainian cities, and attacks have started to intensify. Russia has made key advances mainly in the southern part of the country and has reportedly captured Kherson, a city home to about 300,000 people on the Black Sea coast. But so far, Russian troops have been circling but not able to take the capital city of Kyiv, which is currently being rocked by explosions. Russian officials say almost 500 Russian troops have been killed, but experts say it's probably a lot more. And apparently, almost 3,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed. Meanwhile, the toll on civilians is mounting, with Ukrainian officials saying more than 2,000 civilians could be dead, as more than a million refugees have escaped the country. Today, we'll break down two crucial components of this war, the refugee crisis and the financial war that's underway. We're also going to get into some other news, from what we learned from President Biden's State of the Union speech to what on earth is going on with Major League Baseball. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. All right, let's get into it. As the war in Ukraine continues, over one million people have fled the country in search of safety over the past week, as Russian forces attack more cities. You've probably seen photos of crowded train stations or lines of cars as people try to reach the border. People have been finding refuge for now in places like Poland, Romania, and other neighboring countries to the West. But this is just the beginning. The initial estimates were as many as one to five million people, and I've heard more recently more like five to eight million people. Of a population of 40 million, this is a huge, huge displacement. Serena Perrick is a professor of philosophy in the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Northeastern University. She studies refugee crises and has been closely watching the situation unfold in Ukraine. We asked her to describe what someone trying to leave Ukraine might be experiencing right now. One morning you wake up to shelling, to bombing. And you maybe have a few hours to decide, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to pack up what you can in your car and try to leave? And in the case of Ukraine, that's going to mean saying goodbye to the men in your family. And if you're a woman, leaving with your children to try to seek safety. And now remember, you've given any time to think about this. You haven't planned this. You haven't thought this through. Hopefully you remember to take your papers. Probably people are reminding you to take your passport. Maybe you take some souvenirs, but probably not. You probably just have a little bit of clothes, probably don't even have any food. How many people keep cash on them to grab in case of emergencies? So you probably have very, very little of everything. People will get in their cars, you know, with their children, infants, toddlers, and drive for hours and hours and hours. So you drive for two days and you finally get to the border and then you have to wait in line for 40, 50, up to 70 hours. Like, imagine standing in line waiting to have your papers processed for that long and with your children. And now, fortunately, people have been extraordinarily kind and helpful. So I've heard stories of locals, you know, just going up to people in cars, offering them food, offering to boil water so that they can make formula for their babies. 
but you can imagine the incredible stress and all the while like you're still fearing for your life in some cases you might even still be able to hear shelling and what i've heard is that it's only once you cross the border after all you know days and days of this extraordinary journey maybe you didn't you haven't eaten for a day or two or longer and you get over the border and you realize you're safe and then i think that's when people just start crying and they realize all they've lost and all they've left behind and the absolute uncertainty of their future. As more people try to escape the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding, many point out that Europe has already been at the center of multiple refugee crises, since people escaping conflict in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Africa have fled to the continent in recent years. Those refugees had very different experiences than the people fleeing Ukraine right now, and people are calling out the disparity. As late as a few weeks ago, Poland was hard at work building a wall so that Syrian and Middle Eastern refugees were not able to come through Belarus to Poland. And then all of a sudden, when the fighting started in Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, Romania, and Austria as well were extraordinarily receptive. And the language was to talk about brothers and neighbors, and of course we'll respond. And how do we understand this difference? Both groups of people are fleeing incredibly brutal wars. The suffering of children, of families being separated is no difference. Even in the past week, refugees have faced racism. There have been reports that African students trying to leave Ukraine have been held up at border crossings, while white Ukrainians have been allowed to go forward. Peric told us, besides countries showing very different welcomes to refugees, some of the language we've seen European politicians and reporters use to describe this current crisis is also concerning and contributing to the problem. I think the language that we see reporters talking about why this difference occurs is really telling. Talking about Ukrainians as being civilized and implying, by contrast, that Syrians, Iraqis, the cradle of civilization, they themselves are not civilized. You also hear language like, how can this be happening in Europe? This isn't like we're Afghanistan. It's not like we're Iraq and Syria. Implying as well that, you know, we Europeans aren't used to violence. This is not something that we civilized people should have to endure. It's what happens in other less developed places. What I have been interested in in communicating to people is that what we ought to be doing is not criticizing Europe's response to Ukrainian refugees, but rather pointing out that we should be responding like this to all people. Peric did note there is some nuance to consider as we continue to watch the European response to displaced people. I've been one of the people who has suggested that race and racism has played a large role in this, and there's been a lot of pushback against that. And I think there's some fair criticism about that. There are important differences between this conflict and the war in Syria. In particular, Poland and Hungary know what it is to live under Soviet aggression and Soviet repression. And so in a certain sense, their ability to identify with Ukrainians is a powerful one. It's built into their, into their bones, into their history. As well, it's their neighbor. So the aggression of Russia to them is something that the effects of which are felt directly, the worry about where this might go, will Putin attack NATO states, it is very much part of their response. And then finally, there is a sense in which politically, an orderly 
reception of refugees as a kind of a rebuke to Putin, who might believe that unleashing large numbers of refugees into Europe might destabilize it, or at least call into question principles of European solidarity in the way that it did in 2015. And that's not happened, and it's a real show of solidarity, which I think is fantastic. As people continue to escape Ukraine, and as this conflict looks like it might be more and more prolonged, some experts say Europe could face its most challenging refugee crisis of this century, one that could test European systems like never before. What we've seen right now is so much solidarity. Where we may see solidarity break down is if the numbers get so unmanageable and people do start feeling like resources are going to be scarce and it's going to be harder to host them. Then we may start seeing that backlash. But I actually have the sense that people are aware of that as they're trying to facilitate the resettlement of refugees and have been aware of that all along because, of course, that would really aid in Putin's aim to destabilize Europe and undermine the sense that liberal democracy is superior to authoritarianism and look how quickly we can turn on each other. So I think it is absolutely possible to avoid that. And I think the determination of the European Union, European states, as well as the U.S., the U.S. has played a role in facilitating and coordinating refugee resettlement, could help us to avoid that. And I hope the lesson we take from that is that it is in fact possible to welcome and receive large numbers of refugees and ultimately host them for the duration of their conflict in dignified, humane ways for other refugee crises down the road. We'll leave a link for how to help Ukrainian refugees in our show notes. In response to Russia's military invasion of Ukraine, the West has unleashed an attack of its own on Russia's finances. We've never seen the weaponization of finance like this on this scale for such a large economy as Russia's. Meet Megan Green, an economist and senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. She told us we can break down the sanctions on Russia into three major buckets. The first bucket is isolating Russia's banks. The U.S. and its allies have kicked a lot of Russian banks out of SWIFT, a.k.a. the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. Now, SWIFT is a messaging system that's used in most interbank transactions. And so if you don't have access to SWIFT, it's really hard to make transactions with banks in other countries. So it's huge for payment settlements. For those Russian banks that don't have access to SWIFT, they basically can't really interact with other countries' banks. Think of it this way. SWIFT is to banks what Venmo is to us. It facilitates transactions and securely alerts everyone of money coming in and out every day. And so removing most Russian banks from SWIFT is basically the equivalent of kicking those banks out of the global banking group chat. The second type of sanction the West has imposed affects Russia's emergency stockpile of money. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been hoarding other global currencies, called foreign exchange reserves, in Russia's central bank. It's kind of like a rainy day fund that Putin could tap into in case the Russian ruble lost a lot of value. In that case, he could use that foreign currency to buy rubles in an attempt to bring its value back up. 
So now, Western countries have cut off Russia's central bank and said, you can't transact in our currencies anymore. The result? The ruble has collapsed, and the central bank has one hand tied behind its back in terms of what it can do about it. By neutralizing most of the central bank's foreign reserves, we've actually taken away their ability to sort of compensate for any other sanctions that we've imposed on the economy. So that's really crippling for the Russian economy. There were immediate bank runs after the sanctions were announced. You also heard about luxury goods stores being sort of overrun uh, by Russians who are going to use cash to buy luxury goods in the hopes that those luxury goods hold their value more than the Russian ruble does. So I think, you know, the immediate impact is really one of fear and rightfully so. And the third type of sanction hits Russia's exports. One isn't directly hitting the financial system, but it's a blanket ban on exports of technology. And that can be difficult to implement, but in theory, it really hits at the sectors that Russia cares a lot about, like aero defense, security, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, areas where Russia wants to be a player. We should also note, besides countries imposing sanctions, businesses and even sports leagues have also started to ghost Russia. Companies from Apple to ExxonMobil to IKEA are dramatically reducing the business they do with Russia. FIFA, which is world soccer's governing body, has kicked the Russian team out from all competition. And even here at home, some governors in Utah, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire have banned Russian vodka sales in state liquor stores. All of which adds to the sting that Russia's bank account is feeling right now. But Green told us it's important to realize that even though this weaponization of global finance is intended to hurt Russia, we'll also feel the effects in the U.S. and in Europe. One major thing you may have already noticed is that the price of energy, gas and natural gas, is going up. According to AAA, the national average price of gasoline hit $3.66 a gallon on Wednesday, up over 30% from a year ago. And that's likely to go higher. Because, reminder, Russia provides 10% of the world's oil. And people are worried that Russia's about to turn off the faucet, making your trip to the gas station more expensive. By the way, it's not just the price of gas that's going to keep going up. Green told us prices for a lot of things are going to keep increasing because we need energy to produce most goods. We'll definitely see higher inflation while this lasts. And there has been a huge debate among economists about whether inflation is transitory or not. And for those like me, actually, who have been arguing it's probably more transitory, it's going to last longer now because energy costs are going to go up and push other prices upwards. And the final place you might feel the impact of this war is in your 401k or your stock portfolio. The final impact for people in the U.S., I think, is financial. You know, I think that the volatility or the swings in equity markets alone could be significant insofar as a lot of Americans have money tied up in equity markets because they've been going up for a long time now. They've been dropping this year, but I think that drop will get a lot more dramatic. We'll end by pointing out the U.S. and its allies do have more sanctions they could pull out of their back pockets as this crisis continues to escalate. There are other things we could do. We could have a Visa and MasterCard ban credit card transactions in Russia. We could ban imports of Russian energy. That would be the most impactful thing we could do for the Russian economy. 
So far, Democrats and Republicans have put pressure on President Biden to consider a ban on Russian oil. And while that step would be the most dramatic, it would also be the trickiest to implement and could hurt the U.S. economy further. As the West rolls out more sanctions, we'll keep you updated every week on our show. And our Skim Money team has a ton of suggestions about how to protect your wallet from rising inflation, which you can check out at theskim.com money. On Tuesday night, President Biden gave us a pulse check on the country during his State of the Union address. My fellow Americans, last year, COVID-19 kept us apart. This year, we're finally together again. In his speech, Biden called out Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin's latest attack on Ukraine was premeditated and totally unprovoked. He rejected repeated repeated efforts at diplomacy. He thought the West and NATO wouldn't respond. He thought he could divide us at home in this chamber and this nation. He thought he could divide us in Europe as well. But Putin was wrong. Biden also said getting rising prices under control here at home was his top priority. That means make more cars and semiconductors in America, more infrastructure and innovation in America more goods moving faster and cheaper in America. Not to mention, he threw some shade at Facebook. We must hold social media platforms accountable for the national experiment they're conducting on our children for profit. And overall, Biden said he wanted to help both sides of the aisle find some common ground. To help us read between the lines of his speech, we called up Kadia Goba, a national politics reporter at BuzzFeed News. Kadia, what was at stake for the president going into last night? Like, set the stage for me. What was the vibe going in? Sure. Everyone anticipated the State of the Union to be somber. Europe is embarking on what looks like war. The president's polling is really, really low. And the country at large is experiencing inflation worse than they have in decades. So many people, again, thought it was going to be somber, but expected him to promote a unifying message. That's interesting in the middle of a campaign season, because as you know, midterms are coming up. So I thought it was interesting, rather than championing a lot, he looked forward and made promises. And I think that's kind of what people thought he would do. You mentioned the war in Ukraine, and that took the lead in his speech. And it seems like there was a very unified response in the chamber. What was Biden's tone towards Putin? It was stronger than we'd ever heard before. Let me just set the stage. Many members of Congress wore blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukraine flag. Representative Sparks, who's from, she's from Indiana, but she's actually Ukraine-born. She had on a blue and yellow ensemble. Some members waved blue and yellow flags. So you got this sense of solidarity throughout the room. And then Biden, first going immediately into COVID for maybe 15 seconds, immediately pivoted to Ukraine. So he was very forceful. He directly talked about Putin. He said Putin was wrong. 
I talked to Representative Sparks immediately after, and she was pleased with his approach on Ukraine. You mentioned COVID. What was Biden's message about COVID? Obviously, there were no masks in the chamber last night, which is really different than the State of the Union from last year, which is pretty kind of sad vibes. People remember that last, well, half measure State of the Union because this was actually his first one. And they remember how sparse it was in the Capitol. This time, more members than the last time. Seating was sort of socially distanced. He made some news. He talked about free rapid tests that would be available as early as next week. Many people remember during the onset of Omicron, there was a testing issue. It seemed like the government had lowered their guard a little bit and there were massive lines outside for testing. So he addressed that. He addressed um, a program where antiviral pills are available if you test positive at hundreds of pharmacies. And he talked about being ready for the next variant because, again, one of the big criticisms in this administration is that they were not prepared for Omicron. Yeah, it, it feels like he just wants to move on from COVID. And also a lot of people have already moved on and they don't thank him for that. And so he's just like, I'm over it. I'm out of here. Like, let's let's move on. Sure. <laughs> on the topic of inflation, what is on his to-do list when it comes to inflation? And what did he outline as his plan? So one of the primary things he talked about in addressing inflation, I thought was particularly interested, was about cutting the cost of uh, prescription drugs and actually honed in on insulin, which, you know, is a treatment for diabetes. Many people in the U.S. are plagued with this capping the cost on insulin. So I thought that was like really big. He talked about energy, introduced some new energy measures, which is interesting because if you talk to Republicans, when they talk about Ukraine, they say things could have been remedied if we were more self-reliant. So I think he combined Democrats' push to deal with the environmental crisis with Republicans who think that we should be more self-sufficient in terms of energy. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting that he brought up the need to make computer chips and semiconductors here at home. Obviously, those things being made abroad has led to shortages and has led to rising prices. And he clearly feels like America needs to innovate in that way. He laid out an actual plan about computer chips, honed in on Ohio, a specific area where it would bring tens of thousands of jobs to create computer chips. Just being more self-reliant and not having to go to China, something that rang really well with Republicans. Something else that rang well with Republicans was that Biden, I think, notably broke from some members of his party and said, fund the police, not defund the police. That got big applause from Republicans and some Democrats. Does that represent a shift for the president or is he clarifying his position? So I'm glad you said clarify. I want to say that he has never said defund the police. And I want to be clear because this is a big misnomer and something that Republicans were able to champion and run on. There were about two members of Congress who talked about defunding the police. Many other members of Congress did not touch it, but that was the problem. They didn't push back about not wanting to defund the police, even though they would tell me privately in the halls that is something that they don't support. But Biden, he was very clear and forceful, saying, we don't want to defund the police. We want to fund the police. So, yes, he clarified his position on that. It was very forceful about it. And I got to say, 
one of the proponents, Corey Bush, stood up when he said that. So, <laughs> which was surprising to me. Yeah, interesting going into midterms, too, that they, you know, feel the need to to clarify that further. Was there anything that Biden seemed pissed off about or frustrated by? You know, I got to say, even the yelling coming from Representatives Boebert and, you know, the chance of build the wall when he talked about illegal border crossings, which, again, Republicans were very pleased about, even when I talked to them afterwards, it didn't seem to like bother him. It didn't seem to shake him. I'd say he was most aggressive when he talked about Putin and unifying the country. Stepping back and thinking about the speech as a whole and what Biden outlined, you know, I think a big thing a lot of people focused on was the unity agenda, which we touched on about kind of four, I would call it like really just non-controversial things like ending cancer. Do you think that unity and finding serious common ground is going to be the major theme going into midterms and for this presidential agenda for the next year? I mean, they certainly need to make that happen. Republicans are countering right now, talking about school boards. So Democrats, if they have a fighting chance at all, they need to respond with specific things they want to accomplish and telling the American people how they're going to get there. And they probably need to achieve one or two of them before the actual midterms. Very rarely do presidents make actual news and introduce new stuff during the State of the Union. And he introduced a ton of stuff I had I'd never heard of. Yeah. Kadia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've got some bad news for anybody who was excited for opening day at the ballpark later this month. Baseball's been canceled. Well, okay, the first couple of series of the regular season are canceled. But still, things are pretty serious in the major leagues. Team owners and the players' union have been in a fight over contract negotiations since the fall, and you'd think they would have figured out a way to play nice by the time the season rolled around. But they keep striking out on reaching a deal. So what's going on here? We're going to try to hit a home run and explain this to you in 60 seconds. Play ball. To understand the beef between owners and players, we need to take a look at how baseball contracts work. When a player joins a major league team, he gets a standard salary of a little over half a million dollars a year, and he could end up with more after a few years. But he has to play for six years before he can become a free agent and put his talents out there for the highest bidder. Even though half a million dollars is a ton of money, for a lot of players, those first six years are their best years. And lately, baseball has so many great young players that owners seem to be saying, why spend so much when we can rely on cheap young guys? The result is that some of the best players in baseball are paid way less than they're worth. In fact, the average salary in the MLB has been dropping for four straight years. So now, players want a higher minimum salary, and new rules that they say are going to make the game fairer for newbies and veterans alike. While owners say you've already got a good deal and MLB contracts are some of the best in pro sports. This week, the two sides were still playing hardball, and now they're down to the last inning. There's no way for them to work out a contract before the season is technically supposed to start, so the first week of games has been canceled. 
At best, it'll be mid-April before anybody's throwing out a first pitch. At worst, well, the last time the MLB missed games because of a labor dispute was back in the mid-90s, and in that case, they had to cancel the World Series, which is kind of a big deal. So pressure's on for somebody to step up to the plate, but it's still TBD whether owners and players will find a way to team up on this one. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. We want to end the show by saying we know that the news and headlines recently have felt pretty heartbreaking. Staying informed and getting smarter about the world around you can sometimes feel like it's at odds with actually protecting your mental health. Even on our own team, where we cover the news for a living, we've had to have these conversations recently. So our colleagues at SkimWell asked a psychologist, Dr. Carol Rubenstein, for some ways we can all live a smarter but also healthier life as we continue to see news alerts and scroll our feeds for updates. Our first question for Dr. Rubenstein was, what should I do if I feel like I've run out of emotions? She told us that can be normal. People have been going through a traumatic past few years, and as a result, it might feel like your compassion piggy bank is running dry. But that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. At some point, we're not built for this, you know, as humans, but we truly are not built to be chronically in this state of panic. I think a lot of us are in compassion fatigue mode at this moment, and that's why I can feel even scarier that we're like witnessing something like this and we don't maybe feel the way that we might have two years ago because we are so worn down. It's okay to recognize that, it's okay to notice that, and to, to figure out like, okay, how do I navigate this? This is hard, I feel kind of numb, but in the past I would have felt differently, and that's okay. If this sounds like what you're feeling right now, Dr. Rubenstein has some advice. Recognizing, okay, like, okay, I need to get back to basics here. I need to take care of myself. I need to give some compassion back to myself here because in order to have any compassion for others, I've got to take care of myself. It might be like, I need to be on a little bit of a social media detox for like a week. I need to get off for a week. And you know what? That's not going to change the situation, but it might change your ability to kind of tolerate what you're feeling, to be able to relate to emotions, to connect people. If you're thinking, taking a social media break, what's that like? You might be one of the people who's been doom scrolling. You know the feeling. Staying up late or zoning out of work meetings to refresh your feeds. And while we might think that that's helping us stay informed in real time, it can actually backfire and contribute to something that's known as headline stress disorder. If this rings a bell, Dr. Rubenstein told us, you need to figure out a news consumption schedule that works for you. Maybe it's one podcast a week, hint, hint, like this one, or opening up one newsletter in the morning. There are plenty of ways that you can stay informed without hitting your exhaustion limit. We all have different tolerances for this type of information. And so just looking at for yourself, like, how do I feel when I read this? And, and knowing that and knowing kind of 
how much you can consume and really kind of honoring that for yourself. But if creating routine around your news habits still isn't working, Dr. Rubenstein told us you might actually benefit from talking about what you're reading or listening to with somebody instead of just keeping it all in your head. Tons of scientific studies show that talking about something helps us process it. That's why therapy has been super valuable to people or why sometimes you just need to call your mom instead of texting her. For some people, when they're feeling something like this, it's connecting with another person about it. So like with a friend or with someone else and just saying like, this is making me really sad or really upset. Like, how how are you doing? Checking in with someone else and connecting over it versus disconnecting. You know, I think connection can be something when we're feeling scared that can be very helpful. And finally, it helps to remember that even though there's a lot that we can't control about what's going on in the world right now, we do have the ability to help and in turn, help us feel better in the process. So what does help look like? It includes donating money to relief organizations and humanitarian organizations, or you can join a peace protest in your area or even support a local Ukrainian business. We'll leave a link to the Skims Guide on how to help Ukraine in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our resident baseball expert and head of audio, Graylin Brashear. We had additional help this week from Sajin Coriellis, and our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.